book of Job, chapter 19. I met your pastor, I guess I had the, the privilege of meeting him just via email uh, a couple weeks ago um, through a mutual friend, and so I got on your website and listened to some sermons, and I thought, man, this guy's really good. Uh, big shoes to fill this morning. And then before the service, I was talking to, to Derek, and he said, many of you came from Capitol Hill Baptist Church, where you sat under Mark Devers' preaching. If I was not nervous before, I certainly am now. Um, but what a joy it is to, to read that passage in 2 Corinthians, right? The best among us are jars of clay. Um, and God uses us anyways. Book of Job, chapter 19. To give the context, since we're sort of parachuting in here, uh, we'll go ahead and read, starting in verse 1. Um, but during this, the sermon, we're going to focus in on verses 25 to 27. So we'll end with verse 27. The book of Job, chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone, and my hope has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has put my brothers far from me and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O oh, you my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. And now our verses uh, for focus this morning. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. So leads the words of the living God. The story is told of a group of parachute trainees who were taken up for their first jump. And the instructor gave them some last-minute instructions. He said, after you jump, count to eight and pull the ripcord. If your chute does not open, pull the backup cord. 
After you reach the ground, a truck will be there to return you to the airfield. When it came time for John to jump, he did exactly as he was instructed. He leaped out, he counted the eight, and he pulled his ripcord, but his chute did not open. So he pulled the backup cord, but the backup chute did not open either. And so with great sadness and deep disappointment, John said to himself, well, with my luck, the truck won't be there either. <laughs> you know, sometimes in life, you can do everything the right way, exactly as you are instructed, and yet the outcome is not what you would expect, right? You can get up early to pray and read the scriptures, yet trouble still befalls you. You can do everything you can to be a submissive, faithful wife or a, a sacrificial, faithful husband, and yet trouble will still hit your marriage. You can do everything in your power to raise your kids to love the Lord. Yet the uh, pleasures of the world will entice them. Sometimes you can do everything the right way, but the outcome is not what you would expect. And that's the situation that Job finds himself in here in chapter 19, but all throughout the book of Job, really. The book begins by describing Job as a man who was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters and had amassed so much livestock and obtained so many servants that he was considered by all to be the greatest man in the East and to be greatly blessed by God, and no doubt he was. Yet unbeknownst to Job and everyone else on earth, there was a heavenly dialogue commencing between Satan, literally the adversary, and Yahweh, the Lord. And Job finds himself then at the center of this cosmic battle. And by the time we get to chapter 19, Job is in deep, deep despair and he laments. But as you'll see oftentimes in a biblical lament, whether in Job or uh, perhaps more frequently in the Psalms, there is a turning towards God at some point. Right? There is hope. There is a, a statement of confidence that God is good and will make things right. Just as the stars shine brighter in the night sky and diamonds glitter more brilliantly on black velvet, so Job's statement of confidence in verses 25 to 27 stand in bold relief against the darker backdrop of the rest of the chapter that we just read. Job seems to be all alone and, and perhaps he would prefer it that way. Right? His friends have turned against him. They mock him. What family he has left has failed him. His servants despise him and God seems to Job to be his tormentor. And it is in this tragic setting that this beloved passage of Scripture is born. But notice something real quick. In verse 23, Job wishes that his words were inscribed in a book and that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. Now this is significant because this, uh, this precedes this climax of faith Job has starting in verse 25. Right? He's, he's vacillating thus far throughout the book. He's hot one minute and cold the next. He trusts God one minute and doubts Him the next. Yet there is this trajectory toward hope that Job maintains. And thus, with his faith on the, the verge of reaching its highest peak, Job uh, expresses his desire to have his words immortalized. It's like hiring a photographer on your wedding day, right? You would not want to uh, miss, uh, 
the memories, miss out on capturing the memories of this special occasion by not having pictures taken. Job wants to make sure his words are forever remembered, and God grants Job this wish because we have his words in our Holy Bibles. And though heaven and earth pass away, or rock and lead, God's word will not. God does far more than Job could ever ask or think. And this brings us to verse 25. And in these short three verses, we're going to learn three truths that we must confess to overcome affliction. Three truths we must confess to overcome affliction. First, we must confess our faithful Redeemer. Look at the beginning of verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives. This is remarkable. Job goes from uh, the realm of wishful thinking in verses 23 and 24 to certainty and conviction in verse 25. He knows that he will be vindicated by his living Redeemer. I love that the ESV capitalizes the R in Redeemer. This is none other than Jesus Christ. Though if you've read commentaries on Job, you'll find that commentators are split. Reminds me, I used to have a professor in seminary who said that getting a PhD in theology is like learning more and more about less and less until you know everything about nothing. (laughs) And I think some commentators from Job suffer from that. But Job knows his Redeemer lives. And this... uh, this Goel in, in, in the original, uh, often translated elsewhere as kinsman redeemer, was usually a blood relative who performed this office, if you will, of, of redeemer for his kin. And he had three primary duties. First, if a Hebrew lost his inheritance, or was about to lose it, through some sort of debt, the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, would come in and pay that debt and restore the inheritance. This is similar to what Boaz did for Ruth. Second, the Goel was to redeem by power when necessary. Right? This is what Abraham did for Lot when Lot had been captured right, by the four kings who made war against the king of Sodom and his allies. If you just started a new reading plan for 2020, you might have just read this narrative. But Abraham arms his household. They go and pursue the captives and, and they set them free. And third and and finally, the Goel had a duty to avenge a death. So imagine that an ancient Israelite is attacked and and killed or is dying, and the Goel learns who has struck his relative. He snatches up his own sword and dashes off to avenge the murder. And these are shadows and types of what the Lord Jesus has done for us, is it not? He restores for us the inheritance lost in Adam. He restores us to health from uh, the sickness and death and misery that we are subjected to in this fallen world. And Jesus redeems us by power. We were in bondage to sin, were we not? Enslaved to it. One is reminded of the, the Stockholm Syndrome. Right, where someone is taken captive and they, they, uh, this phenomenon whereby they grow a dependency on their captor. 
Jesus frees us from our dependency on sin. He, he breaks the power of canceled sin, the hymnist wrote. And finally, Jesus takes up arms and avenges us. Or rather, I should say, He lays them down. He becomes our kinsman by the way of His incarnation, right? Becoming bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. And He lays down His arms, as it were. He tells Peter, put your sword away. He calls off the legions of angels that could have saved Him. And He subjects Himself to a gruesome death on the Roman cross. So that He might save us from death itself. I think John Owen captured it best in the title of his book, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Job had persevering trust in this Jesus. He may not have known his name or when he would appear, but he knew the Redeemer would come. And I want to point out one more thing here in this first half of verse 25. And that's that one little word, my. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. This is personal for Job. Luther once said, he said, the Christian faith is a matter of personal pronouns. Read with great emphasis these words, me, for me, and accustom yourself to accept and apply to yourself this me with certain faith. He writes, these words, our, us, for us, ought to be written in golden letters. The man who does not believe them is not a Christian. One thing I did not tell you in my biography was that there was a period of time from when I believed the Bible was true and the gospel was true and the time that I believed the gospel was true for me. About six months, I, I could say it this way, there was about six months before the time that I believed the Bible was true and the time I was born again and actually saved. It's one thing to know that Jesus lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death and rose victorious, but if you do not believe that he did those things for you, then Jesus is of no value to you. And I would be remiss if I did not ask you, is Jesus your Redeemer? Do you trust Him to deliver you from your sins and the consequences they deserve? Job goes on. Second half of verse 25. He says, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. Literally the dust. Job is uh, sitting on an ash heap outside the city gates. This is uh, an excommunication of sorts. He's sitting out there in shame. And at this point in the story, he fully expects to die. And the term dust is used uh, sort of euphemistically throughout the book to refer to death. Job is asserting that even if he does die, his Redeemer will take his stand on the earth. More specifically, on Job's grave. The very ash heap where he now sits in misery and pain. The very ash heap where Job may indeed die and be buried. It is on this ground that the Redeemer will appear and make certain that Job's vindication is witnessed by all. In verse 25, Job expresses true, genuine faith. It is not choked out by 
tribulation, right? This is the seed that was sown on good soil. Jesus said of those that are His, no one can snatch them out of His hand. And it is only true and genuine saving faith that can persevere in the midst of such horrendous affliction. Such was the faith of Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of uh, the famous missionary to the Aka Indians, Jim Elliot. She endured the loss of uh, not just Jim, who was murdered by the Aka Indians trying to reach them with the gospel, but her second husband was also slowly destroyed by cancer. She outlived them both. And reflecting on these experiences, she wrote this. She said, The experiences of my life are not such that I could infer from them that God is good, gracious, and merciful. To have had one husband murdered and another one disintegrate body, soul, and spirit through cancer is not what you would call a proof of the love of God. In fact, there are many times when it looks like just the opposite. Yesterday we were leaving the gym and uh, we got in the car and my youngest son, Isaiah, he's five years old, too smart for his own good, and he buckles himself in the car seat. And he realizes as we're leaving the parking lot that his strap is twisted. And he has heard us say, you know, by God's grace, such and such a good thing has happened to us in the past. And so just kind of putting it together in his head, he lets out this gasp or this sigh in frustration. He says, Dad, by Satan's grace, my strap is twisted. (laughs) Right? It's easy to look at the bad things that Uh, that happen to us and say, well, God must not be in this, right? But not a hair can fall from your head, dear friends, apart from the will of your Father in heaven. The strap cannot be twisted apart from God's will. As Christians, we walk uh, not by sight, but by what? Faith. Elizabeth Elliot Continues. She says, my belief in the love of God is not by inference or instinct, it is by faith. To apprehend God's sovereignty working in that love is, we must say it, the last and highest victory that overcomes the world. When all the circumstantial evidence points to a hostile or, or at least an indifferent God, it is genuine faith that unconditionally affirms God's goodness Sovereignty and love towards those who are His. Regardless of what those closest to us may say, regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in, regardless of whether your shoot or backup shoot do not open, the genuine believer converted and dwelt by the Holy Spirit rests his faith in this, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Job confesses his faithful Redeemer. Second, verse 26, Job uh, confesses his future resurrection. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. And we're not told how long a period of time this suffering goes on for. Job is struck with boils way back in chapter 2. And he's since relocated from his home to the ash heap. And he's scraping off boils on his skin with broken pieces of pottery. 
And at this point, he must look horrific. Like a scene out of a, a, a horror movie. He's a, a mangled piece of rotting flesh. There's great similarity between Job and this uh, picture and the prophecy of the coming Messiah in Isaiah 52. Remember, Isaiah writes that his appearance was so mar, speaking of Jesus, beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of man. This is a terrifying scene. The King James, if you have that, it might say, and though after my skin, worms destroy this body, but the, the translators supplied the words worms and body to try and get the, the grammar to make more sense in their eyes. I don't think that's warranted or necessary. I think destroy captures it, but more specifically, it means to, uh, to peel or to, to strip off or to flay. Job is attempting to verbalize this pain by using figurative language to describe the deterioration of his body by scraping the boils on his skin, his flesh is becoming, in a sense, flayed. Sounds painful. Job is presenting a picture that death is slowly creeping up on him. The grim reaper's at the door, if you will. Nevertheless, he is not without hope. Some of us are old enough to remember TVs that weren't flat. I can remember pressing the off button, and instead of going black immediately, it kind of closes in on this little white dot before it goes out, right? That's Job. It's grim, it's dark, but he's got a glimmer of hope. And he writes, or he says, Yet in my flesh, or from my flesh, I shall see God. This seems very different to me from how most Christians seem to express the eternal state. It's not uncommon to hear people talk about some disembodied spiritual existence in the clouds. I don't do Facebook anymore, but I can remember when I did. And anytime somebody in my circle would pass away, I would see many comments to the effect of another angel earned their wings. Friends, that's wrong theology. Wrong theology does not provide hope. The reality is far greater. I don't want to be sitting on a cloud for all eternity in some toga, playing a harp, or floating around. I want to be in my body. I just had my fourth knee surgery in December, at two last year. I want a new leg. I want to worship God as a man. And so did Job. I don't want this same body with aches and pains and headaches. I want the new one that God has promised me. And it is never wrong to hope for what God promises us. We just celebrated a big holiday. Christmas. And if your house is anything like mine, uh, sometime right after Thanksgiving, your tree goes up, your decorations get set out. And starting in, in December, as the month goes on, slowly more and more presents begin to fill up under the tree. And I can remember as a, as a child just waiting to, uh, to, till Christmas morning, and I could bound down the steps 
and tear open that wrapping paper. And that's how I feel about what God promises me in eternity. Paul says, what is sown perishable will be raised imperishable. He says, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Being in Christ is always better than being in Adam. And what we gain in Christ far exceeds what was lost in Adam. Job had a hope that no matter what happened to him on this ash sheet, he would see God. When someone passes after a period of suffering or having a disease, you might also see this comment on your Facebook page. Well, at least they're in a better place. At least they aren't suffering anymore. But is that always true? What if uh, their suffering has just begun? That's a scary thought to consider, isn't it? But friends, the, the resurrection doesn't just affect the believer. It also affects the unbeliever. The unbeliever will also be resurrected, but without the Redeemer and without the reward. Jesus said in John 5 that an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. My plea with you this morning is do not leave here without confessing Jesus as Lord, as your Lord. And if you do, it doesn't matter what state of decomposition your body is in when the resurrection occurs. It doesn't matter if the worms have eaten their full or if like John Wycliffe, enemies of the gospel exhume your bones and and burn them and bury the ashes at sea. Jesus will restore you. Perfectly. But on the other hand, if you spurn Christ, if you don't trust in man's only Redeemer, it doesn't matter what pristine condition you die in. All the embalming methods of Egypt will be no match for the torments of hell where the fire is never quenched and the worms never die. Death taunts the unbeliever, but the Christian taunts death. Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? No matter what afflictions confront us now or in the future, death is the worst that can happen, but for the Christian, it is also the best that can happen. For to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Coming to verse 27, we learn that we must overcome affliction by confessing our faithful Redeemer. We learn that we must overcome affliction by confessing our future resurrection. And now, we learn that we must overcome affliction by confessing our final reward. Namely, God Himself. Look at the second half of verse 26 through 27. Job says, Yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Three times Job states that he will see God. That's what he's looking forward to. That's what he's anticipating. 
So it's, it's as if each uh, use of the word see is uh, crescendos, right? Yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. My eyes shall behold or see Him, and not another. Job is absolutely certain that he will see God, and for him that is enough. It has been well said that you don't realize sometimes that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And with one foot in the grave, as it were, Job is comforted that Jesus is all he needs. To recount, Job has lost everything. His financial prosperity, gone. His ten children, whom he loved dearly, gone. His health has deteriorated so drastically that he is on the precipice of death. His friends accuse him. His servants despise him. His wife has deserted him. Yet with God, Job's heavenly reward, Job will be satisfied. He can cry out to God with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing I desire besides you. Like Moses in in Hebrews 11, uh, Job endures as seeing Him who is invisible with the eyes of faith. He has his eyes set on God and he longs for this day when he'll see God for him. (coughs) And not another. That's ambiguous and, and could be better rendered perhaps not as a stranger in verse 27. My eyes shall behold and not as a stranger. The same word uh, translated here in, in the ESV as uh, another is translated elsewhere in chapter 19 as adversary in verse 11. Estranged in verse 13. Stranger in verse 15. In parallel with the word foreigner. And strange in verse 17. The point is this, though God seems to be his adversary now and seems to act toward Job as a stranger or a foreigner would, Job knows that in the end God will show himself to not be a stranger. On the contrary, he will reveal himself to be Job's kinsman, redeemer, and between the two parties, Job and God will be peace forevermore and reconciliation. And friends, in a similar manner, we who have come to faith in Christ find Him as our kinsman, Redeemer. And while suffering in this life is all but guaranteed, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. God has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Apostle Peter in his first epistle explains this uh, this concept when he writes this. And by God's providence, it looks like you guys are about to start studying through 1 Peter. But the Apostle writes this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that, there's a purpose in this, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We persevere through affliction by placing our faith in the ultimate Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
who will raise us up on the last day to spend eternity in His presence, where He will be our reward. And Job concludes with a a sort of Hebrew idiom. If you have the King James, it says, quite literally, though my reins be consumed within me. I don't think most of us would understand that, so the ESV helpfully translates it. My heart faints within me, which I think nuances it a little better for us. In any case, Job's faith is more than intellectual assent. As his faith reaches its pinnacle, he is elated. He is emotionally drained. And just like he will do at the end of the, uh, the theophany when God appears in chapter 42, Job melts or collapses in humility on the spot. So how does the book of Job end? Uh, was this outburst of faith, this uh, confession of trust, just wishful thinking? I mean, if Job were in a desert dying of uh, thirst, his vision blurred, he's stumbling to find life-saving water, and he, he spots it, he sees this oasis in this vision of God as his Redeemer. But is it just a mirage? Or is it real? Well, if you read on to the end of the book, you will find that God does indeed appear on the earth. He does vindicate Job before Job's friends. Job uh, sees God in the only way a mortal man can, not face to face yet. And Job's fortunes and family and health are all restored. In fact, if you do the math, everything is restored to him twofold. He receives exactly twice as many of each of his livestock. And he receives ten more children. Seven boys again and three girls. And you say, well, that's bad math. He had ten children. Now he has ten children. That's not double. But Job believed in the resurrection. Job did have twenty children. And he would have twenty children. His latter years would be blessed even more than his former years. And I think that's important to the original audience that read the book of Job. Job is a a, a microcosm of the rest of Scripture, right? Everything is well in the beginning. Man is blessed. Satan enters the scene. There is trials and tribulations. Then God appears and restores and makes things right. The book of Job, if you will, is a foretaste of eternity. This uh, restoration at the end. I want to read to you from the ending of a children's Bible that we have. Some of you may have the same Bible. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And the subtitle is Every Story Whispers His Name. It tries to convey the ending of God's story and and Job's story and our story in words that a child's mind can understand. And I love the simplicity of it. It says this, there will be, uh, quote, no more crying or being lonely or afraid. No more being sick or dying. Because all those things are gone. Yes, they're gone forever. Everything sad has come untrue. And then paraphrasing the last two chapters of Revelation. The author writes, One day, John, the Apostle John knew, Heaven would come down and mend God's broken world and make it our true, perfect home once again. And he knew in some mysterious way that would be hard to explain that everything was going to be more wonderful for having been so sad. 
And he knew then that the ending of the story was going to be so great, it would make all the sadness and tears and everything seem like just a shadow that is chased away by the morning sun. I think if you ask Job when you get to heaven, he would say it was worth it. It was worth crying those tears of sadness to know God's gentle touch when he wiped them away. I think he would say it was worth the mourning to know the warm embrace of God's everlasting arms. And friends, Satan still prowls around like a roaring lion, doesn't he? The New Testament tells us as much. Seeking someone to devour. But the words of the Holy One, as Job often refers to God, are the same to us as they were to Job, though perhaps more precise. Again, from 1 Peter, and we'll end with this. The Apostle writes, Resist him, that is the devil, firm in your faith. And after you have suffered a little while, I love that. He puts it in context. It doesn't matter if it's 50 years, 80 years of suffering in the context of eternity. It's a blip on the radar. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank You that though You have promised trials and struggles and tribulations, You have also promised that we will never go through them alone. That You will never leave us nor forsake us. We ought never to be surprised by these light momentary afflictions that are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Lord, we ask that You, in the weeks and months and years ahead, that you keep us, sustain us, and deliver us. For your glory and our joy, we pray.